Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. The book of Ezekiel has been a challenging one since its beginning. Rabbis in ancient times actually advised against exposing people too early in their faith journey to the vision of God that Ezekiel has in chapter 1. Also, the marital allegories um, in chapter 15 and chapter 23 are shocking and offensive to some people, but it is definitely part of our canon of Scripture. It was accepted as part of Holy Scripture well before Jesus' time on earth, and Ezekiel's contribution to the Christian faith has been quite significant. The book is generally laid out chronologically. Um, There are 14 references to time, so we're able to kind of hang the different oracles on um, historical events. And all of them center around the deportation of the Judean king Jehoiakim in 597 B.C., Ezekiel himself was born around 622 B.C. He probably died around 570 B.C. at the age of 51 or 52. He's called in chapter 1 at 30 years of age, so he has about a 20-year ministry. He operates as a prophet during the Babylonian captivity. It never mentions him having any children. Um, And like I said, he prophesies over about 22 years. He lived in Jerusalem during the first Babylonian attack that we read about in 2 Kings 24. He is taken into exile with the first group of captives when Babylon spared the city. He is a descendant of Joshua through Rahab, the prostitute. Um, And this is according to the Talmud, which is the Jewish scriptures, and the Midrash, which are Jewish interpretations and explanations of scripture. There are some who say that he is the son of Jeremiah, um, who gets called Buzzy here because they the people hated him and hated his ministry. This, to me, would explain why Ezekiel sounds uh, quite similar in the fact that he's prophesying to a people who do not listen and is not popular with what he says, was continuing the work of his father. I don't know which of those is um, actually true. According to Midrash's, The Ezekiel is who the three Hebrew sons, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, go to for advice. They are prepared to be martyrs. They're the ones who are thrown into the fiery furnace um, by the king because they won't bow down and worship the statue. And then they look into the furnace and they see four men walking around. And then the three Hebrew sons, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out of the fire unharmed. It's said that they went to Ezekiel for advice about what to do about this law that they didn't feel like they could comply with. And that they then, after speaking with him, were completely prepared to be martyrs. But God later revealed to Ezekiel that he would miraculously save the men. The book of Ezekiel contains six visions structured around three themes. The first theme is judgment on Israel in chapters 1 through 24. Then there's judgment on the other nations in chapters 25 through 32. And then there's a future blessing for Israel in chapters 33 through 48. 
The book of Ezekiel contains a strong theme of individual responsibility to God. This is a later development in Judaism. Early in scriptures, what we hear is whole communities are guilty. If it's being done among the people, all of them bear the weight of that guilt. We begin to see now the idea that individuals need to be faithful and God will reward them for being faithful individually apart from their tribe, their country, or their people groups. The book of Ezekiel has been very influential to mystical and apocalyptic traditions, both in Second Temple and Rabbinic Judaism, as well as Christianity. When I refer to Second Temple and Rabbinic Judaism, this would be a span of about a thousand years that spanned from 515 BC to around 500 AD. The imagery that we find in the book of Ezekiel is the basis for the second temple, Herod's temple, that was erected during um, Jesus' time for a tradition in which visionaries ascended um, through the seven heavens to experience the presence of God. There's a strong literary influence of Ezekiel on Daniel and on Zechariah. The first century historian Josephus attributes two books to Ezekiel, this book of prophecy, as well as the Apocryphon of Ezekiel. But that turns out to be, um, we can't find any texts that date back before about the first century BC, so well after Ezekiel, but that book really expands on the idea of resurrection, following up on the idea of personal responsibility. Ezekiel is referenced quite a few times in Revelation, and almost exclusively in Revelation. He's he's not quoted much of anywhere else in New Testament writings, and the reasons for this are not clear because the influence is clearly there. It may be because um, Ezekiel seems to be encouraging these mystical visions. And in the New Testament times, they didn't want to encourage mystical speculations and, and journeys and visions because that seemed so very similar to the other nations around them who were not worshiping God. It could also be that the book of Ezekiel was still considered somewhat obscure incoherent and pornographic at this point, like you wanted to be careful about accessing it and spending too much time with it. And so as the new Christian communities began to develop their source material, their books and letters and writings that they held sacred, and as they began to purchase scrolls of the Old Testament books to use on their own, which happened after they got cast out of the synagogues and weren't welcome there anymore, the scroll of Ezekiel would not be one they would have purchased very quickly. It would have been lower on the priority list for what we need to get a copy of and have here. Okay, so let's jump into the book. As we go into chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 help us situate the book. The date is the 30th year, the fourth month, and the fifth day. The prophet is 30 years of age. Um, this is the year that he would have entered priestly duties if he hadn't been gone in exile. Cross-reference that with Numbers 4.30. So instead of starting temple service, he starts prophetic service. He is a priest. He's of the priestly tribe. And now he's going to be a prophet. That wasn't unheard of, but it was usually rare. Priests were usually priests, and prophets were usually prophets. And prophets were not usually of the priestly tribe. 
He's living among the other Judean exiles along an irrigation stream, um, which they call the River Chebar, south of Nippur, which was in the lower Mesopotamian Valley. It's a refugee camp for the captives that have been carried out of their homeland and to this area. Verses 4 through 28 give us a vision of the chariot. There's a storm cloud approaching from the north, and inside that cloud are four very strange creatures. They have human bodies with four faces. Each creature has four faces, one human, one lion, one ox, and one eagle. Um, The eagle faces inward, so they're looking at each other. The human faces outward. The lion faces on the right, and so therefore the ox is on the other side. Each of them have four wings, two with which they cover their body, two which they stretch out, and which touch. So they're in the form of a square. And there's a wheel below each of the creatures, and it's a wheel within a wheel. So it's got a hub, as kind of like a tire, has an inner wheel and an outer wheel. And the rims are full of eyes, and they all move together in unison with no effort. Um, and they can move quickly without any warning of a, of a change in direction. There. We also find out later that um, they have calf feet as well, and um, they'll have arms or hands that are under their wings, and they are the color, color of burnished bronze. Now, sitting on their wings is a platform which has a dazzling appearance. It's called literally a dome, or and it's a crystal that is shining, and on that platform is a throne. And the throne is like a sapphire or lapis lazuli, so it is brilliant and blue. And then there's a human-like creature sitting on the throne. The top portion of the body is amber, and the bottom portion is fire. Um, And so there is splendor all around all of this. There's a loud, rushing sound of water when all of this structure moves. Think in terms of the sound of being near a huge waterfall like Niagara, the sound of crashing running water. We have all the colors of the rainbow here. It's it's very bright, and there's a sound like the thunder of God, or the thunder of Shaddai is what it says. And immediately Ezekiel recognizes this as the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. In other words, this this is a manifestation of God in all of God's glory. God is riding his royal throne, which is really a chariot because of the wheels, and it's movable. Um, The Hebrew word for glory, by the way, is kavod. And so that's what he sees, is the kavod. Biblical authors used to describe the physical appearance and the manifestation of God's significance when he shows up in person. Um, so they use this word for describing all of that. It's very similar to what happened when God shows up on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, 24, and 25, as well as the depictions of God's presence, which hovered over the Ark of the Covenant. They also use that word for the presence of the glory of God, something awesome and amazing and at both wonderful and fearful. The question becomes, why is God's glory, or God's presence, in Babylon, where Ezekiel is having this vision, instead of in Jerusalem, which has always been the center of God's presence since they came into the promised land? So God is in a land far removed from the promised land, 
and the center of worship, which is the temple and the most sacred space of the people. Um, but Ezekiel has seen and heard God in a far land. And so we want to ask ourselves why. And his response to encountering the presence of God is to get down in submission and worship. Um, and having responded appropriately, then the climax of this story becomes that he is able to hear God speak. There is divine speaking. Um, the voice of verse 25 becomes understandable. So he's could hear the noise, but now, having had the proper response to God's presence, he's able to hear and understand. And so God speaks both to and through Ezekiel in this book. In chapter 2, we start a section that is chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 27. It's a single unit, and it's a vision of the scroll. And here you will hear echoes of creation from Genesis. Um, in verse 1, it addresses him as, O mortal, or some of the translations say, Son of man. It's literally Ben Adam, or Ben Adam, which means of Adam. And that's the way, it's going to be that same thing throughout the book, every time God addresses Ezekiel. He's told to stand, and then something stands him up. The presence of God does it for him. Um, what God speaks, like he did in Genesis, still happens. Um, Ezekiel doesn't get up. He is stood up. He he receives his commissioning to go preach to Israel and told up front that it'll be difficult, which was the same thing that Jeremiah was told, that the people are rebellious. The words that they will say against him will be like briars and thorns and the sting of scorpions. But Ezekiel must do what he's told to do, and he'll be judged by his obedience to God rather than the successfulness of his preaching on the people. As we move into chapter 3, he's commanded to eat a scroll that has been given to him. And these are words of lamentation or mourning that are on the scroll, words of woe. Uh, so warning and judgment and, and mourning because of it. And the prophet must internalize the word of the Lord that comes to him. He must become one with the words and the will of God for his ministry. And so he finds that it is sweet as honey. The words are hard, but to be in the place where you find yourself in the center of God's will, in the center of where God calls you, is a good place to be. It is sweet like honey, even if the task we're assigned to do is hard. In verses 4 through 11 of the third chapter, we get the third warning about their rebelliousness. They have a rebellious nature, but God has made him equal to the task. He's up to it. They're hard, but you are harder. They are hardened to me, but you will be hardened because of me, by me, to withstand what you are facing. As we move into verses 20, 12 through 21, the Spirit lifts him up and the chariot throne carries him away. Eventually, it will bring him right back here to Chabar, where he sits stunned at what he has seen and experienced for seven days, for a complete cycle of time. And now he's called um, a sentinel. He's warning against impending calamity that is coming toward the city. A sentinel warns people, whether they listen or not, it's their job to sound the alarm. Some may listen, so that's a glimmer of hope. Um, but we're going to see this as a recurring 
um, idea very briefly each time it comes up all the way through chapters 1 through 33, and then again in the very closing chapter of the book. As we approach the end of chapter 3, Ezekiel is called to a time of quiet withdrawal and solitude with God. Um, It's a kind of spiritual house arrest to get ready for his ministry. The chords that it talks about here sound like bondage. This would be the way that exiles were often carried into captivity. Um, The tongue clinging to the roof of the mouth would be from extreme thirst. That also would have been a thing that would have been common to captivity. We're unsure whether this is spiritual or, or physical. Um, captivity that he's experiencing and modeling for us. Moving into chapter four, we enter another section that runs from the first verse of chapter four through the 27th verse of chapter seven. This is a collection of judgment oracles, and it's going to include four sign acts or um, performances, kind of performance art that portrays the siege of Jerusalem. In verses one through three, he's ordered to build a model city, kind of like a diorama, and then um, glower at it from behind an iron skillet or a plate. This is performance art that is saying um, people are looking on you with judgment. Like right now you're behind an iron plate, um, but there's there's evil in judgment. There's bad things coming on the other side. Verses 4 through 8 are another performance art or sign act. He's to be tied up to lie on his left side for 390 days, then on his right side for 40 days. And we have to wonder about the numbers that are given here, why these numbers. Some have calculated that there are 390 years between the rebellion against Rehoboam when um, Israel splits through the destruction of Jerusalem. So it's picking up from the fourth year of Rehoboam going through all the kings down to Jerusalem's destruction there. So that may be um, the case. Exodus chapter 12, verses 40 and 41 assigns 430 years to the Egyptian sojourn and 40 to the wilderness wandering years. So who knows exactly what Um, the numbers stand for. It's all speculation. Verses 9 through 13 give us a portrayal of desperate famine conditions. Um, Good flour, wheat and barley, have to be supplemented with inferior grains for there to be enough to eat. And even steel, there's just barely enough for a little over eight ounces of bread um, and just slightly more than a pint of water. Um, Human dung for fuel is not literally ritually unclean by anything we can find in scripture or other writings, at least to our knowledge. Um, But Ezekiel seems to object um, to it on the grounds that he thinks it it makes him and whatever is cooked over it unclean. So God agrees to let him do it over cattle dung instead. Moving into chapter 5, we go to the fourth performance art piece. He's to shave his head with a sword, his beard as well. He's to burn a third of that hair. He's to cut a third of it up into tiny little pieces with the sword. And then he's to scatter another third to the wind. This would be three ways that people will die. They may die in the city, in the country, or scattered across the world. The sword speaks of looming violence and the scales to the judgment that's coming. Then he is told to gather some of that hair back up, 
put it in the hem of his garment, and then to burn some of the rest of it. So that speaks to a remnant of people being saved. Um, some will end up being carried around and eventually carried back. Others will suffer. Um, not even all of the remnant will survive what's coming. Verses 5 through 12, we now get an interpretation of the performance pieces. Verse 10 mentions cannibalism. This happens in extreme famine conditions, desperate times, cause people to do desperate things. Verse 11, another translation of that could be, I will withdraw rather than I will cut you down. Um, This goes with Ezekiel's vision of God's glory departing and moving east or leaving Jerusalem and being in Babylon. Another thing it says in verse 11 is detestable things. Um, this w- is kind of a, a vulgarism there. He's talking about droppings of feces. Um, there is kind of like the dung of earlier um, that we saw. And we'll see this again in chapter 7, verse 20. In chapter 6, this segment elaborates on the idolatry and the indictment that's being made here. He addresses the prophecies to the mountains um, where those illicit shrines and altars are located. We also see him mention a remnant here. Um, they're told to remember and regret, like they have wanton eyes and hearts. Wanton would be like someone who is married and longing for someone other than their spouse. Um, so it's unfaithful marriage metaphor that is being portrayed here. In verse 11, where it talks about clap and stomp, these are common signs of grief, of way people physically expressed how broken and upset they were. It's a sign of deep grief and despair. In verse 14, the wilderness to Ribla or Dibla, depending on your translation, is, a, is meaning like from south to north, everywhere. Chapter 7 is going to conclude this section that began back in chapter 4. It's a striking poem about an end. Uh, The phrase, an end, is used six times. The anger of the Lord for their idolatry, their injustice, and their violence um, is portrayed here. The wealthy look to their money to save them, and then there are the horrors portrayed of what a military invasion does. Remember that the word abominations usually has a religious context. It's about worship or worship practices directed toward other gods or worshiping in ways that God has not instructed or has expressly forbidden. And this is used five times here. Verse 7, we see, um, your doom has come to you. Other translations may say it has dawned for you. Um, it has begun. The day breaks in which there will be doom and judgment. Usually sunrise brought hope. But in this case, even what is usually hope, there will be no hope to be found. In verse 6, it talks about violence and judgment, and they're now personified. Um, it has been awakened against you or it has dawned, it is coming for you. I want to remind you that a translation can be a a challenging process, especially for poetic passages such as these. They're looking for how do they convey the message accurately? How do we choose the right piece of a word and find the closest word in a different language to capture all of what the original author is trying to say? I'm going to pause right here and pick up with chapter 8, in the next podcast.